So as I mentioned last, uh, last time, um, this uh, year we're going to be exploring the, uh, what I've called relational Zen. And, um, and as part of that process we're going to also have a discussion group at the end of the meditation period. And um, we're also going to use the traditional uh, Zen precepts to focus some of our discussion. I'd just like to say, uh, to begin with, just a few words on what I mean by relational Zen, which is really just extending uh, my teacher's teaching. Uh, when um, when Zen first came to the West, one of the most influential uh, of the, uh, the Zen schools was a, a very small school in Japan at the time, uh, which was uh, a couple of Japanese teachers called Harada and Yasutani. And um, they emphasized the, uh, the two the two basic traditions, the two basic practices of Zen are koan practice and shikantaza, just sitting. They, 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 they taught both, as, both of those practices, but it was an, 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 a really strong influence put onto the koan curriculum. And um, really the way in which Zen was initially taught in the West was a really strong emphasis on attaining some kind of realization in Japanese called Kensho, seeing into one's true nature, or sometimes people would refer to it as an enlightenment experience. And um, really the message that the Zen students got in the late 60s and 70s, and this particular form of Zen was the importance of having this breakthrough and the idea that we had to push ourselves really hard to have this Kensho or enlightenment experience. And, uh, and then uh, students were given traditionally an introductory koan to do that. And, uh, one of those famous koans is, does a dog have good in nature? And the teacher says, mu, which literally means no, and the student just concentrates on that one syllable, mu, to the exclusion of everything else. Night and day, night and day, until heavens and the earth fall apart and have this wonderful realization of the oneness of the universe. That's all well and good. Um, and these experiences can happen, they do occur, and they sometimes occur even without Zen practice. There's been a number of, you know, you've been aware of people who've had these mystical experiences. Uh, and, uh, and the sort of general consensus among Zen practitioners is that these experiences are accidents. Um, they can't be forced. And, uh, some, some, some sort of like a similarity to the, the meaning of the word grace in Catholicism. Um, but uh, a lot of Zen teachers uh, 
notably a, a teacher called John Tarrant, who, who's an Australian who lives in the United States now, who was part of the Zen lineage, would say that uh, particular forms of Zen practice can make us more accident-prone. And um, so there was this, still this really subtle message that um, really Zen practice didn't really begin until we had this wonderful opening experience. Now the problem with that was that two problems, well it's probably more than two problems, but the two I'm going to mention. One is that um, it sets students up to uh, almost experience a sense of failure if we didn't have this kind of incredible breakthrough. And I must confess, I, I was one of those students who always felt a sense of personal failure because I've never had this wonderful experience. Um, I had a little, little kind of opening experience once when I was on my first or second uh, weekend session or retreat in Zen, Gorok's Run in um, the Sydney Zen Center's Country Retreat Center, when I was sitting facing the wall. Um, as uh, sometimes in, in the Rinzai Zen school you sit facing the wall. And um, there was a fly buzzing around and just for a couple of brief seconds um, everything just, I disappeared and I was just the buzzing, just the buzzing of the fly. And then a couple of seconds later I returned again facing the wall. It wasn't a huge thing. These little things can happen in Zen practice and they're nice. And, uh, they can give us some sense of the, uh, the insubstantiality of everything and of ourselves and so on. And they, they can lay the foundations for compassion and practice in terms of relating to each other as if we are all interconnected and we're all one. And everything's in relationship to everything else. Um, but the huge experiences that were described in some of the books didn't happen very often and, and, it, and it could produce this sense of personal failure. And uh, as you know, it's very easy, you know, in my um, um, experience, both in my personal life and as a counsellor and therapist, um, that sense of personal failure is very easy in our culture because we live in such an individualistic, competitive culture as to always measuring ourselves up against something and feeling a failure. And then we, we really don't want to set that up in Zen practice, you know, we don't want to set ourselves up to become failures. So that was one problem. Um, the other problem was that um, with this emphasis on these special experiences, you know, if you were lucky or fortunate enough to have one, then it, it could also set up a dimension of some kind of elevation of the self, or I've had this wonderful experience and they haven't. And also, it could also sort of set up this dynamic of actually chasing for those kinds of experiences, wanting to have another one like that and another one. And that's problematic as well. It's a little bit like getting addicted to these kinds of spiritual experiences or openings. And, um, and, and uh, uh, the teacher who founded our Zen school, Joko Beck, came, came from that same lineage I was talking about, the Harada Yasutani lineage, and she went through the Koan curriculum. And, um, but one, a, a third problem with this was that even though one could have some of these special experiences, it didn't necessarily show up 
in the way in which people conducted themselves in their everyday life, including some of the uh, Eastern and Western teachers who may have conducted themselves not too uh, properly in terms of their relationships with students or their relationships with uh, alcohol. And um, so having a Kensho or an enlightened experience was no guarantee of uh, an in-depth psychological transformation. So um, Joe Quebec became quite disillusioned with the synthesis on Kensho experiences. And uh, in the founding of the Ordinary Mind Zen School, she moved away from that emphasis. And she dropped the koan curriculum. So we don't go through a series of kinds in our school. Um, rather, we focus on the koans of our everyday life. And so Joko put more emphasis on the gradual erosion of our self-centered preoccupations and the emphasis on having the realization of non-separateness in our everyday life. And so she was more interested in how does our practice show up in our relationships with our partners and family and friends and work colleagues and strangers. You know, how are we able to show respect and truthfulness and show reverence in that everyday life relationships, including showing respect and truthfulness and reverence to ourselves. And so, um, Joker was much more interested in how we experience, you know, non-separateness in our everyday moments. You know, how can we be with that angry reaction? How can we be with our anxiety? Because each moment, the absolute is always present in each moment. And so she was much more interested in how we can be with each moment of our life, not, not chasing after a special experience. If a special experience happens, that's, that's great and that's fine. But she played down the importance of that. And, um, and that's where the, 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 the precepts come into it in, in Zen as well. Because um, the precepts themselves are often like koans and they can help us to shed some, some light on the various uh, relational dynamics we find ourselves in and the various dilemmas we can sometimes find ourselves in. Um, but, you know, but so, you know, even Joker though was still very, very focused and very, uh, very strong in their emphasis on the importance of Zazen practice, on, on just, just sitting. So in our practice we focus a lot on, on just sitting. And we uh, we are encouraged to do that on an everyday basis as well. So the importance of sitting regularly every day. One, one question I want to, for you to contemplate, and, uh, and we'll, we'll probably start a discussion within the, in the group today, but like, how, how does sitting in Zazen, how does, how does just sitting um, meditation on a regular basis benefit our relationships with uh, others and ourselves? How can this just sitting practice that we do every day, how, how, how is it that that can actually bring benefits to our everyday relational life? It's just a question for you to contemplate.
So this, this talk, I'm not going to get through all this talk today, so I'll probably continue it uh, next time. But basically, just a bit of revision uh, for, you, for those of you who can't remember or don't know. What are the precepts? Um, so remember, the, the precepts um, originally started out as monastic rules. And, um, and they were the kinds of rules in which the monks took on when they founded their particular communities in Buddhism many years ago. And uh, in some ways, you know, they lived a life that was kind of like modeling a sense of non-possessiveness uh, and uh, a life of insecurity, not relying upon anything of material wealth uh, to, to demonstrate, I guess, to the surrounding community that, that continued to work that liberation was possible in that sense. And that, down the years, it shifted in China where the monks began to farm, farm the land and they become self-sufficient. And the same practice was carried on in Japan. But uh, around about the, uh, I think it was about the 12th century, with a famous Zen teacher called Dogen in Japan, he, he synthesized or condensed this into 16 precepts that were to be taken up. And... Uh, also, these precepts are also very applicable to, to lay practice as well. One doesn't have to go off to a monastery anymore. And um, basically, those um, 16 pre precepts uh, are the three, what are called the, the three refuges that uh, you will find in all Buddhism throughout the world, which is taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, and taking refuge in the Sangha, or the community of practitioners. And the, uh, they're the first three precepts. Then there's what they call the three pure precepts, which are simply um, uh, doing no harm, doing good, and to save all beings. And we save all beings by creating the possibility for awakening. And um, so they're the first three. Then there's what are called the ten, what you could call the applied precepts, or the ten aspirations. So the precepts are often, uh, traditionally, uh, they start with a, a kind of, an, uh, you know, do not kill or not to kill. But in, in most Zen schools, they will also translate that into a positive one, uh, such as to, to value and support life. And um, the way I've, 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 I've continued to play with the wording of the precepts and... Um, I had one last year and I've changed it again. And what I've, what I've finally arrived at is a, a synthesis of um, my teacher Barry's words and Diana Rosetto's words from the book I recommend. Uh, and um, so just quickly, I'm going to read out the 10 applied precepts that I, in this fashion. Um, so the first one, witnessing the reality of killing and of violence in myself and in the world I take up the way of supporting life. Witnessing the reality of inequality and of greed in myself and in the world, I take up the way of taking only what is freely given and giving freely of all that I can. Witnessing the power of sexuality and its potential for both love and for harm in myself and in the world, I take up the way of engaging in sexual intimacy 
respectfully and with an open heart. Bearing witness to the lack of honesty in myself and in the world, I take up the way of speaking truthfully. Witnessing the reality of delusion and the desire to evade the painful truths of my life, in myself and in the world, I take up the way of cultivating a clear mind. Witnessing the reality of blame and avoidance in myself and in the world, I take up the way of speaking of others with openness and possibility. Witnessing the elevation and or denigration of self by myself and in the world, I take up the way of meeting others on equal ground. Witnessing the reality of possessiveness and the withholding of love and resources in myself and in the world, I take up the way of encouraging mutual support. Witnessing the reality of my own ill will and the pain of divisiveness in the world, I take up the way of letting go of anger. Witnessing my own lack of faith in the power of the three treasures, that's the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, and of the suffering of all beings, I take up the way of awakening, the path and teaching of awakening, and the community that takes refuge in awakening. So you'll find that uh, all different Zen centers have different wordings of the precepts, and that's the wording I've uh, settled on for this year. And um, so we'll be, um, I'll be encouraging you to um, take up that kind of, um, you know, familiar, familiarizing yourselves with those precepts and, um, and sometimes taking, maybe taking one and, and, and uh, taking that into your everyday life and maintaining it in your awareness for a few weeks and just seeing what comes up. We'll talk about that later. And uh, so, just to come back to that question about how, it, how is it that um, you know, just sitting can have some benefits for our, our everyday life and our relationships. Okay, just um, my teacher, Baron Majid, um, focused very much on stressing the, when we're just sitting, stressing the importance of no gain. In other words, when we're just sitting, um, we're not sitting to chase after any special experience, neither are we sitting to sort of fix or change ourselves in any way. We're actually opening ourselves up to this very, very deep acceptance of just bearing witness to life as it is. In our, in our, um, when we recite our four practice principles, we, we recite the importance of, uh, you know, life as it is, the only true teacher. So when we're sitting, we're just being with life as it is, and we're really doing our best to opening up to that. But we also open up to our resistance to just sitting with life as it is, because as you've probably discovered already, when we just sit down and we're just sitting, there's a lot of resistance to, to that practice. Um, it's certainly not something that people will naturally take to, especially this notion of sitting for no gain. It's quite countercultural. Normally we do things for some kind of reward and, um, and, 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 and that kind of um, attitude often creeps into our Zen practice in really subtle ways which we need to be aware of. 
But basically, just sitting with our resistance and, uh, and one of the practices that Joko borrowed from the Vipassana practice, our insight meditation practice, was this idea of labelling our thoughts and our feelings as well. So when we're just sitting, we're just sitting, paying attention to our resistance and paying attention, getting to know ourselves. Firstly, getting to know the kinds of thoughts that we experience, getting to know some of our emotions, and then hopefully we're being, you know, when we're sitting, we're practicing being awareness. And hopefully we can bring that practice of being awareness into our everyday lives. And in our everyday lives, we get these wonderful opportunities to see some of our patterns that come up. And uh, one of the things about relational theory that I'll be talking about is starting to pay attention to some of our dominant ways of experiencing ourselves in relationships. These are very early relational templates that get laid down when we're very young. And how we so like, you know, typically, for example, some people have an expectation that other people can't be trusted, or other people will hurt us in some way. And, of course, and, and, and also there are, they have a, a sense of themselves as sometimes being unworthy or not good enough. And those patterns of relationships that can get triggered in our everyday life, and they bring up emotions that can be quite painful as well. So a lot of our practice is about observing and becoming aware of how we experience ourselves in, in, in those relationship contexts, whether it's at home, with our family, or at, at our workplaces, and starting to develop some insight into that, and seeing how we react, and then starting to focus on how we can use our awareness practice to respond dif differently, to respond with more compassion to ourselves and others in those contexts. So I'm going to leave it at that for today and I'm going to continue next time um, talking a bit more about how we practice with the precepts. And um, I'm going to introduce um, um, what, what I, what's called um, compassionate witnessing and uh, I'll talk more about that uh, next time. So this idea of the precepts both being about witnessing or being aware of suffering in ourselves and others in the world and acknowledging that and, and, and doing our best to become aware of that rather than to, not, to deny it or avoid it in some way. And secondly, precepts being about how we respond, how we how do we respond to others and how do we respond to ourselves in those situations and becoming a little bit more skillful in how we do that. So um, we'll just sit for a couple of minutes.